Hello, and welcome to Ensure and Certain Hope, a podcast about Jesus, faith, the church, and other things. I am your host, Father Jed Fox. I serve as the rector of the Church of the Redeemer, an Episcopal church in Kenmore, Washington. I'm glad you're with us today. Today, we're going to be continuing our series on the outline of the faith. In this podcast, we will be talking about God the Son. God the Son. Question. What do we mean when we say that Jesus is the only Son of God? Answer. We mean that Jesus is the only perfect image of the Father and shows us the true nature of God. Question. What is the nature of God revealed in Jesus? Answer. God is love. Question. What do we mean when we say that Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and became incarnate from the Virgin Mary? Answer. We mean that by God's own act, his divinity, his divine son, received our human nature from the Virgin Mary, his mother. Question. Why did Jesus take our human nature? Answer. The divine son became human so that in him human beings might be adopted as children of God and be made heirs of God's kingdom. Question. What is the great importance of Jesus' suffering and death? Answering. By his obedience, even to suffering and death, Jesus made this offering which we could not make. In him we are freed from the power of sin and reconciled to God. Question. What is the significance of Jesus' resurrection? Answer. By his resurrection, Jesus overcame death and opened to us the way of everlasting life. Question. What do we mean when we say that he descended to the dead? Answer. We mean that he went to the departed and offered them also the benefits of redemption. Question. What do we mean when we say that he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father? Answer. We mean that Jesus took our human nature into heaven, where he now reigns with the Father and intercedes for us. Question. How can we share in his victory over sin, suffering, and death? Answer. We share in his victory when we are baptized into the new covenant and become living members of Christ. If you've been following along with us as we've gone through this outline of the faith, you may have noticed that this outline of the faith that we're using seems to be following an outline, and you'd be correct. Uh, Much of the language in what was just read in the question and answers about God the Son, whom we refer to as Jesus Christ, are taken almost word for word, particularly in the questions, from the Apostles' Creed. Now, some of you who are listening may have become very familiar with the Apostles' Creed at, during Coronatide, as we've been doing morning prayer a lot more than most modern Episcopalians do morning prayer, uh, as we've been worshiping uh, via the digital medium. 
morning prayer doesn't have the Nicene Creed, which is of a later derivation. Instead, it has the earlier and less doctrinally fixed Apostles' Creed. And some people prefer the Apostles' Creed. Um, But the thing about the Apostles' Creed is it doesn't have quite as much detail about Jesus in some ways. There are a couple lines that are not there in the Apostles' Creed that are there. And in the, um, there are a couple lines in the Apostles' Creed that are not there in the Nicene Creed. And so, as we follow along, we get to this large middle section, and both in the Apostles' Creed and in the Nicene Creed, the largest section of that creed, of that statement of belief, is about Jesus. Because for Christians, Jesus is this thing on which everything else turns. Jesus is the person, the event, the moment upon which everything else turns. And the church and people of faith have spent a whole lot of time thinking about Jesus and what Jesus meant and did and have come up with all sorts of manner of ways of talking about it. And sometimes it's great and sometimes it's, we still use things that maybe leave a little bit to be desired. So there, are, you can kind of break speaking about Jesus in church down into a few sections. Who was Jesus? How did Jesus get here? And why does Jesus do what he had to do? So who is Jesus? Right. The, the, and the first most complete answer to this is the first verse of the first chapter of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right. This is... God's only son, the word that was spoken, which created all things into being that came down and dwelt among us. That is Jesus. And so that leads us to the second question, which is he did what now? The word did what now? He came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. What now? And this, this caused the church consternation for several hundred years. Uh, was Jesus human? Was Jesus God? How did that work? Which one was more important? Was Jesus one masquerading as the other or the other masquerading as the one? How did God become human? And the fancy phrase for what Jesus is, is hypostatic union. Um, means holding two natures at once. Jesus is fully human and fully divine, which presents its own set of complicating questions. How does God die? How does humanity enter heaven? Well, the thing about hypostatic union is it says that because you contain the totality of each nature, both at once without the diminishment of either, you can do a whole lot of things. It's, you know, the God part covers the human part and the human part uh, vulnerabilizes the God part. So Jesus is fully God, fully in control. And you see that in, in the way that some of the gospels depict Jesus, particularly John's gospel, as as knowing what's coming and, and being in touch with that divine part of that divinity that is Jesus, but also who is fully human and therefore fully vulnerable in a way which God can never be. 
Not in the way that we are, at least. And so you see that also in the Gospels, particularly in Mark with angry Jesus and Jesus who has a fulsome range of emotions that that concludes on the cross in his call, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then, which then leads us to the last question, why did Jesus do what he did? That is, submit himself to the powers of the religious institution and the state, allow himself to be taken and killed, and then on the third day rise again. And over the centuries, there's been a whole raft of different ways of speaking about Jesus' submittal as a part of his perfection, which is wildly problematic in some ways um, to hold up this idea that if, that if you want to be like Jesus, you have to submit to whatever the people in charge are going to do to you. That's not really super helpful. Um, you know, the embrace of that sort of aspect of it, uh, in some ways is, uh, the embrace of the church looking back at the martyrs, uh, you know, in hindsight, seeing them sort of embracing this wild and radical proclamation of Jesus in the face of, of powers of the state and of the religious authorities that were going to kill them. And saying, oh, they submitted themselves. Therefore, submittal must be right. Therefore, submittal must be holy. Therefore, we should do it as well and do whatever the state says. It also has to do with the fact that by the fourth century, uh, you have the co-opting of the religion by the state to use as a coercive force and to push this idea of adherence to submission to the state. Uh, as a part of faith. You know, there's a reason that the embrace of Christianity by, by Romanisms and Christianity's non-rejection of that is called by some uh, church historians the first great mistake of the church. First of many. Uh, maybe a better way to understand what Jesus does in, his, in the Passion and Crucifixion is experience the totality of what it means to be human. When, when I was uh, much younger and traveling in Central, in Central and mostly Central America, um, particularly in Mexico, I, I noticed that the crucifixes in Mexico were much, much more graphic than the crucifixes in the States. And uh, I happened to, after doing some of that traveling, be able to speak to a Roman Catholic priest uh, who was a part of the campus ministry at the college I was attending at the time about this. And he pointed out that that, that is integral to to uh, the the faith of oppressed people. That that is, that is a, a, a theme that you see in in the churches of people who have experienced colonialization and oppression all over the world is that Jesus is, Jesus is portrayed as much more beaten and bloody 
than the sanitized Jesus on the cross that we get in our churches in the United States. And that is because a beaten and bloody Jesus feels like a full expression of humanity to a people who have been beaten and bloodied by colonialization and racism and all of the other isms that we have to put up with in this world. And it's comforting to think about the fact that the, the God that we worship has been through and understands the totality of suffering that we experience up to and including capital punishment, murder. That's a radical notion. It's a radical story to tell, which there aren't really a lot of other religions that make that claim, that God has had our experience and understands us through that experience all the better, and that God is in God's celestial place, then advocating for us because of that experience. And that is why the humanity of Jesus and the Godship of Jesus is so important in Christianity, because God sanctifies the human experience. God makes the human experience a part of what it means to be God and the holiness of God, a part of what it means to be human. He reaffirms the goodness and the goodness and holiness of, of creation and especially of hum, humanness within creation in the resurrection of Jesus. And that our home is indeed with God through the welcoming of Jesus into, into God's nearer presence in the ascension. So, yes, Jesus is the linchpin upon which all of this that we call the church, all of this that we call our faith in, as, as Christians turns, and for many good reasons. Not because God, Jesus was the most subservient and we just need to work like Jesus to be more subservient, but because through Jesus, we are adopted as God's family, right? It talks about that specific, in that specific language, the adoptive language of us becoming children of God, the idea that God has no grandchildren. And the only thing that's required, which is another departure that Jesus inaugurates, the only thing that is required of us to achieve that adoption is choice. To choose to be a part, to make a decision to be a part. Now, it's, and it's not just a one-time decision. That's the thing. It's not just something, I, I choose Jesus Christ, you know, I answer the altar call, step up, put your hands in the air, say, save me, Jesus, um, and then you're born again. It is a choice of love, the revealed love of God in Jesus Christ that makes the choice again and again and again to choose relationship over anything else. To choose relationship over self, to choose relationship over righteousness, to choose relationship over what is easy, to choose love and relationship within love as the highest good that is what it means to be Jesus.
is what it means for us to join in the body of Christ. And what it means ultimately to be God's children. I want to thank you again for joining us again today on this podcast as we have been talking about the Son of God in the outline of the faith. I'm Father Jed. I've been your host of this podcast, Ensure and Certain Hope. I hope that you will join us again very soon. And God's blessing be with you. Christ's peace be with you. And Spirit's outpouring be with you now and forevermore. Thank you.